a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course, address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits, welcome. Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode on the podcast. It's going to be a tricky conversation and when this person who's coming to talk to us today emailed me with her story, I was very close to tears. I can remember my heart fluttering and I felt so grateful and humble at the same time that Helen decided to speak to me, but not just to me, Helen was ready to show and share what she was going through with the world with you today. Helen Munro is an amazing woman, and we're going to talk about fertility. Now, we really tried to plan today's conversation because there are so many more aspects and layers to it, but we want to focus on Helen's story and experience alone. Of course, we could talk about her husband's experience much more, her grandchildless parents, adoption, surrogacy. There are so many more layers to this intense and huge and important conversation. But to do it justice for today, we just wanted to focus on Helen's experience. Helen said, of course, I still have my moments and sometimes the pain of not having held my own baby is overwhelming. But despite that, I feel whole and that I'm where I'm supposed to be. Let's welcome her in. Hello, my lovely Helen. We got there in the end. <laughs> I know, technology. I would, I would have thought I'd be good at it by now, but I think... Uh, a little bit nervous and just couldn't see what I was doing but thank you Danny it's lovely to see you it's so great to be here and when I was reading your email when you explained to me the journey you've been on I wonder how you've been feeling writing it all down because you wrote in a lot of detail to me and I wonder how did that feel was it good or was it bad cathartic or traumatic both it was both and before I wrote it down to you I didn't plan to do an email that was quite that long or detailed but it's sometimes isn't it hard to tell a story in summary and it's hard to tell people about what you've been through with cancer and menopause and infertility even to somebody who has a deep understanding of it like you do because having been through your own journey it's really hard to summarize it in a few sentences so, yeah, how did it feel? It felt both. It did feel cathartic and it did feel, I felt unsettled afterwards. And when I say unsettled, what I felt was almost separate from that person I was talking about. And I felt, I felt, I suppose, compassion for myself and what I'd been through. Wow. That was I had that that sense, but it wasn't a negative experience writing it down. I think it's and maybe I mentioned this to you in a later email. I think it's just an I think talking about this stuff is another step, even so far down the line, is another step in my growth and journey. And to finish off an answer to that question, and it sort of links to something else we were just talking about before we started recording it has made me wonder whether I should be seeking some form of counseling and one of your previous guests mentioned compassion counseling which appealed to me whether now is the time to seek some form of counseling which sounds ridiculous because as you know I'm quite far down the line with this but I haven't been able to speak about it until now so thank you for talking to me and What is amazing, we have, our idea for this conversation was to help others and to talk about infertility after Mm -hmm. cancer and menopause. 
But wouldn't it also be amazing if you too took something away from it and whether that might be access to maybe looking at talking therapy or some form of counselling. It's amazing to do that. Yes, and Um, I think that's right. Thank you. I also felt a little bit unsettled about the whole conversation because I've never spoken about fertility in such detail. We run programs for charity tracks dog for young women in their twenties and thirties. And there's so much to cover on the menopause field and infertility is so huge. It's almost, we need to do 20 episodes on it. And at the same time, life and my journey just evolved differently. I was already a mum when I was diagnosed. And so I embarked this journey having had three daughters. And although in the early years it was so hard thinking, oh my gosh, if I don't make it, they'll be left. Now, further down the line, I also know how utterly lucky I was and so many people haven't had this chance. So I really hope this conversation shows so much compassion from both of us for everyone listening to this because it's sensitive, isn't it? Danny, I think you make such a good point there. And how old are your daughters out of interest? So Rose is nearly 14 and the twins are nearly 12. And they're mad as anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we need to just understand we've all had such different journeys and we feel for everyone who is along that journey somewhere. So what I'd like to say on that, and I I think that's a really insightful thing and, and thoughtful thing of you to say, I would not want you or anybody else, and it's an approach I've taken for the last five years, to feel like they had to tread on eggshells around me. And most of my closest friends, and certainly my four best friends, who I've just spent a week with actually for our uh, joint 50ths, we went to Mallorca. We talked about children, we talked about this stuff. And they don't feel that they have to tread on eggshells around me. And they've all got children of different ages. And I think it can be difficult for somebody who's got a family to know how to speak to somebody who hasn't been able to because they're worried about offending them or they're worried about saying something that will trigger them or and I I don't want you to feel like that and I don't feel like that I genuinely don't feel like that your journey is one thing it comes with lots of difficulties as well and having it's it's very challenging having a family so I don't want you to feel like that you I will be open with you and you you won't upset or offend me because we've agreed to have this open conversation yeah thank you Helen and so I want to go back to your diagnosis and can you give us all a little bit of a treatment and diagnosis overview so we know where you've started and how you got to here today us having this chat absolutely the one thing Danny that I don't like discussing is statistics so if you don't mind I'll stay away from statistics Uh, I've, I've, I've always stayed away from them to me, they're meaningless because I'm an individual. I'm just not interested and it, it frightens me. So I've, I've never, and my consultant knew that. So the, the backstory is that I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2000, early 2010, and I was 37 years old. I just got married to my husband um, and we're still married. We'd been married for a couple of months. And in that couple of month period, I'd found a lump. Uh, when I'd been adjusting my bra as it happened. Now, as it turned out, it was quite a large lump, uh, three centimetres. So it's not surprising that I found it. I eventually plucked up the courage to go and have it checked out. I was terrified. We had quite a lot of breast cancer history uh, in our family. We don't have the BRCA gene. Whether there's another genetic link, who knows? But I was really frightened and went to get it checked out. And yeah, it was diagnosed as breast cancer. I had a mastectomy and a full lymph node clearance on my left hand breast. And then I moved on to, let me try and get this right. I did that. Then I had my chemotherapy started about a month later. So that started in the April. So from February, I'd been diagnosed. March was my operation. April was my chemotherapy, which lasted for six months. I was on, I think it was six rounds of chemotherapy. Then I moved on to radiotherapy for about a month. At that time, I went on to the drug tamoxifen. At the same time, I started having the Zolodex injections, which are the monthly injections, which, and one of your other guests had the same, you have for two years that shut down your ovaries 
because my breast cancer was highly estrogen receptive. They locked, they shut down my ovaries. That was my first menopause. And during that time, I was also having a treatment called Herceptin because my breast cancer uh, was HER positive. I don't really know what that means. I just followed the advice. Uh, so yes, it was a, <laughs> which I did at all stages. And I've heard other people say the same thing. I'll just take whatever you give me. My absolute priority was to survive. Nothing else mattered. Uh, so it's an estrogen receptive breast cancer, stage two, which meant it had spread to my lymph nodes. Uh, when they removed my lymph nodes, they only found it in one lymph node, which was a blessing because it was a grade three breast cancer, which is an aggressive form of breast cancer. I can't speak for, for the consultant, but I think he was surprised too. I feel that was probably an excellent outcome that it had only spread to one lymph node. Um, and then I remained on tamoxifen for the next 10 years. I came off tamoxifen earlier this year. I was actually on it for 12 years in total. Uh, because of lockdown, my appointments got missed. And in terms of reconstructive surgery, I had, I didn't have reconstruction immediately. I don't really know why now when I look back on it, but I had it at about four years later on the left side. I had the back muscle, the latissimus, latissimus the, don't know, the LD flap, the back muscle, which is made into the breast. And I, around the same time, maybe a year later, so around six or seven years ago, I had a preventative or a risk-reducing elective mastectomy on my other side and reconstruction. That wasn't something that was advised. The surgeon didn't think I needed that, but I wanted it absolutely. And I had it and I'm very pleased I was too. And then I had a different form of reconstruction in that side. And I can't imagine what it's like when you just have a wedding you get married you've maybe gone on honeymoon and your life is just starting to bloom to then be diagnosed with breast cancer that early in to a marriage that must have been very odd when you were just celebrating the heights the most important so many people say the day of my life and then yeah that lump it was it it threw everything upside down for me for my husband and for my you know my close family my parents and my sister it threw everything up to, upside down that's not what you expect at that stage I mean now I know more it happens to people young mm. bad things happen to people but yeah it did it was and one of the hard things about it and I still find this difficult to talk about but I have spoken about it, it's not a secret, but I find it hard to look back at the photos of my wedding knowing I had the lump then, but I didn't mm. know. Mm. And I really remember before my wedding when I was having a, a dress fitting and the woman that was fitting, I was moaning about my breasts, which were always quite large, double D sort of size, uh, double DE, that sort of size. And I remember moaning to the dress fitter before my dress fitting, oh, I wish they weren't so big. And I remember her saying something like, you need to be grateful because she wasn't, she was nice, but you should be grateful because I'd had, I'd had a lump removed. I can't remember the exact. And when, sometimes when I think about that, I, I just find it really. So yes, it was a yeah. shocking time. It was a shocking time. I, I was in shock is what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, traumatic time and sad that it came so close. However, on the plus side, <laughs> my husband very quickly got to prove himself <laughs> as a good husband <laughs> he's a keeper <laughs> I love that Bruce that's brilliant well done Bruce <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh gosh oh, and listening to your sum up um mastectomy, lymph node clearance, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, tamoxifen, zodalex, herceptin. Of course, we now know these are many different stages of menopause. So sometimes chemo can set on temporary menopause. We don't know if periods come back, but tamoxifen, zodalex. So this would then lead us into our fertility conversation. But really your story to fertility with fertility and pregnancy started two years before that. 
Yes, it did. I'd had, so I, Bruce and I were together. We'd been together for about four years. Um, and in 2008, and I remember it because it was the bank holiday, the August bank holiday, 2008, I found out that I was pregnant. Um, I'd been feeling sick and tired and all that kind of stuff and took a pregnancy test and found out I was pregnant. We hadn't planned it. Um, but but it, it, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't a terrible shock. <laughs> I mean, without going into detail. <laughs> um, so yes, I was, and that that. Um, so yes, I was pregnant, and we'd gone for. I'd remembered going to see my lovely GP, Dr. Jeffrey, at that time. It had always been wonderful, and he said, "What we need to do, Helen, these days, people have they don't just wait for the twelve-week scan or sixteen-week scan. I forget." He said, we go, they do a nuchal translucency test, which is the one where they do a scan and they look at the sac of fluid on the back of the fetus's neck. And it indicates the size of that. And I, I, I'm probably saying this all wrong, but it indicates whether there's a risk of the baby having or the fetus having Down syndrome or other chromosomal abnormalities. And then you decide whether to go to the next stage of investigations. And he, I remember him saying, and it stuck with me, we're just doing it to put your mind at rest, to put your mind at rest. And ever since, because it didn't put my mind at rest, which I'll, which I'll explain, but ever since then, since somebody's used that expression, just want to put your mind at rest, I always think, well, it might not do. Anyway, so we did go for that. And I remember it with them. Um, I remember it very clearly. We went to a private clinic in Manchester where I live and lovely Dr. Bullen, as it was then, as, as he, I, I think that was his name. And I remember the look on his face as he looked at the scan. You could tell straight away he had concerns. I remember Bruce being at the end of the bed, holding my foot and his hand squeezing because he realised. And Dr. Bullen, the consultant who I've seen, said, look, you know, this is the situation. We went to see him. He said, there is a, there is a, the nuchal, and we've taken a blood test as well. They've done both. They've looked at the scan, taken a blood test. Now, I can't remember what the percentages were, but it was, oh, sorry, I can't remember what the chances were, but it was high. I don't know if it's one in three or one in 10 or what it was, but it was high that there was going to be a problem. The baby would have Down syndrome. Anyway, that changed everything. We went away, had a long, we spent a long, I remember my parents were away in America at the time and ordinarily I would have spoken to my mum about this kind of stuff, but it didn't, they were away and I didn't speak to her about it. Obviously Bruce and I spoke about it and we were deciding what to do. And the truth is by the Monday, we had decided not to proceed with the pregnancy. We decided that and I, I'm not going to pretend to myself otherwise. Sometimes it's easy to rewrite these things. Yeah. To romanticize them. Yeah. We had decided not to proceed. But when I went in for the scan, um, I forget where it was, it doesn't matter. The ba- the fetus had died. There was no heartbeat. Okay. That really shocked me. That really yeah. hit me. Anyway, I didn't miscarry. I had to go into hospital for a, for an induced miscarriage, which was a very difficult, and I would think it was about 13 and a half, 14 weeks at that point. That was a very difficult thing to go through physically, very painful, very traumatic. Anyway, I had the induced miscarriage, so we lost that baby. That was at the beginning of, end of 2018. Mm. Yes. Uh, sorry, Dan, I think I just have explained that in too much detail. I hope not. No, there is never too much detail. Thank <laughs> you. And it's just so important to piece all the things together, because sometimes when we speak to breast cancer or cancer survivors, we start with the date of our diagnosis. Yeah. But really, there is much more to us and our mm. life experiences, life shocks, traumas, they sometimes start way before and our good experiences and all of that That's influences right. who we are, isn't it? So yeah. it's important to allow ourselves to go back because more defines us than our diagnosis. Yeah. Going back to your diagnosis, your number one focus was survival. And I do want to talk to you about egg saving treatment, how that came up in consultations, if anyone might be listening to this, who is about to embark on cancer treatment. What were the conversations between you and your healthcare professionals about that? Well, that's a good question. We didn't have any. Now, I was very clear with my wonderful consultant early on that there was only one thing 
and one thing only that I wanted, and that was to survive. Nothing else mattered to me. Take it all. I didn't want to discuss fertility. I wasn't, there was absolutely no way I could have even thought about that at the time. I, I don't think even if they'd offered that to me, I could have. I just don't think, I'm being honest with you, I don't think I could have even thought about it. I was in a state of high panic. Um, I probably stayed in that state for a long time. If they had offered me anything that involved estrogen, even if somebody had told me it was safe, I wouldn't have done it. The one thing that wasn't mentioned to me, and I know it wasn't, nobody said, because it might not even be available, I have no idea, but nobody said, well, we've got a, a month or you're going under general anaesthetic for your mastectomy. Why don't we see if we can retrieve any eggs without estrogen? Now, I don't even know if that's a thing. I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> I've no idea whether it's a thing. I mean, could they have? I don't, I don't know. We'd never had that conversation, but I want to be quite clear. Because sometimes with the benefit of time, you go back to a situation and look at it differently. Why didn't anybody talk to me about fertility? Well, I was very clear-minded and very clear with my consultant and he understood me and he understood the person I was then. And I don't think it's his job to predict the person I might have been five years. I don't think it's his job. Whether it's anybody's job, I don't know. He understood me. He understood that I don't like talking about statistics. He understood that I would take all treatments and he understood that the only person that mattered to me was me and surviving pregnancy and future children was not on my raid was not on my priority list it wasn't even on my list but when you were going through treatment mm. all your friends around you were having babies they were <laughs> yeah they were and not only were they having babies they were in the final push of having babies. You know, I was 37. And so people were sort of approaching the, the time when they were thinking, well, I've had one, it's final push time. And of course, it felt like the whole world was pregnant. It felt like everybody, everywhere I looked, people were pregnant. And within my circle, actually, a lot of people were pregnant. Um, I'm forgetting exactly who one of my friends was, but certainly two of my closest friends locally in fact we live on the same street uh they they had their babies in the i think it was in the january and i just uh it was diagnosed in the february so yeah it was baby central at that time i felt so different i felt so different and jealous but more than jealous it was much more complex than jealousy or envy it felt so it felt like they were being sprinkled with magical dust. And I was in this dark, not grubby, that's not right, but dark place. Oh, it was really the, the what is the word juxtaposition or whatever it is yeah. between the two was in then was intense and had I been diagnosed now and people would be being diagnosed at my age nearly 50 they'll be going through their own problems with that you've been diagnosed when you've got children Danny we've talked about that that comes with its own other story traumatic story but I remember being diagnosed at that age which was the fertile years for my group felt very difficult I also felt from a selfish point of view, uh, I also felt really not part of the gang. And I'd always been part of what was going on. I'd conventional, I suppose. I'd been I'd never been somebody who I was always part of a group. I was always part of the norm. Yeah. And I I it's actually taught me a lot about not being, which I think has been a brilliant learning lesson. But oh, at the time. I hated it. 
I felt so different and so excluded. And I don't think anybody was excluding me, one or two, but I don't think anybody was actually excluding me. In fact, I think the opposite. I think probably they wanted to include me. They probably didn't know how. I mean, imagine. No. And cancer changes us, doesn't it? Yeah. And it changes who we are and our belief system. And suddenly we don't think we fit. We don't even think we fit in ourselves anymore. And then we don't think we fit anywhere, really. Quite right. I know. You don't. You feel so... (laughs) You feel so different it's you 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 look so different and it wasn't that I that that one of the things is that I don't think I ever felt I've really thought about this before but I don't think I ever felt less of a woman because of it but I I then wonder have I coached myself so thoroughly that I have not allowed myself to feel that but I don't think I did really feel that but I felt so uh, just on the outside of what was going on in in real life how can they be on that path and I'm on this path what's happened and they've got these gorgeous little bouncy babies and I love babies and that's the one bit I really find you know I love babies and one of those people that sees a baby and wants to cuddle it I know not everybody's like that but I am and to just not have my, to not be going oh. through and to not feel special and have all that, you know, that's again, it's about, yeah. So that was, it was difficult. Let me just tell you at this point, it's reminded me of something. I think it was around this time, although my mum will remember it differently, no doubt. She remembers everything because the poor woman had to be like a sponge, but she gave me a poem. Now you may have come across this poem because People use this poem, but it's called Holland. And have you have you come across the poem? Oh, Danny, no, I'll send it. Oh my gosh, I'll send it to you. I would urge anybody who's dealing with a challenge in their life that puts them on a different path to read it. Uh, it was wonderful. I think it was written by somebody who was dealing with coming to terms with a disabled, uh, having had a disabled child when all their friends. Um, had able-bodied children. I'm not sure about that, but it works for so many different situations. So the idea is you get on a plane and you think you're going to Italy with all with everybody else. Everybody's going to Italy and you should be going to Italy as well. And you're excited about Italy and Italy is glamorous and there's beautiful things to see and it's warm and it's beautiful and everybody's in Italy having a great time. But when you get on the plane, you've got on the wrong plane and your plane's taking you to Holland, and you didn't want to go to Holland, and everybody else has gone to Italy, and there's so many things in Italy you wanted to see, and oh, I don't want to go to Holland. But when you get to Holland, and you open your eyes, you realise that Holland is beautiful too. It's got windmills, and it's got tulips, and the people are warm and welcoming, and oh, it's making me shiver now thinking about it. And it was so clever of mum to give me that poem. It was so clever because it's, it's not, you can say I'm getting emotional now. Mm, mm. It's never left me. Yeah. Sorry, Danny. No, that's totally. But it, it really spoke to me and yeah. it still speaks to me. Yeah. Because it makes me think, and this is the way I've developed over time. Yeah. You can adapt to and you can have an equally happy, whatever happiness means. An yeah. equally happy life, it's just different. Mm. I remember you writing to me saying that when you went through radiotherapy, you were even worried that some of the radiation might pass onto your friends' babies and yes. you felt like a monster at times. And yes. When you wrote that, I thought this is exactly, it sums up how removed we feel, how angry with ourselves, how hard we are on ourselves that we can even think that, isn't it? And it just probably resonates with a lot of people listening to this because we feel so bad about ourselves for being in this situation, for going through these treatments. We're very hard. To, it's very hard to love yourself then. 
It, 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 it is. And I was so worried that something from the chemotherapy or the radiotherapy specifically would seep off onto the babies that my friends had had and that they were, that I was at that time holding. I then, yeah. I then moved into a sort of rage phase of infertility where I literally couldn't bring myself to look at or speak to anybody who had children. But during that initial phase when I was going through treatment, I was spending time with particularly one of my closest friends who still is, who's been a, a, a great support, actually. She's never, she's kept battling on with me through it all. Her kids are now something like 12 and 10. She lives two doors down, but she kept battling on with me. She always knew that she'd find a way through. But anyway, um, but at the time, I remember holding her babies and another girl's babies, really worrying that something would seep off mm. and worrying that they would be scared that something would seep off onto them. Mm. And what a horrible thought to be alone with, because that's obviously an illusion. It's the doctors would have said <laughs> if that was a potential risk. And so a horrible situation to sit alone with, because I guess it's not something you would have said you're worried about to anyone else. Or did oh, I didn't. You? No, I didn't. No, no I didn't. Yeah. No, I sat alone with it. I remember there being something about radiotherapy or radiation treatment that I must have picked up from something. Yeah. And I think it's when somebody has an implant, a radioactive in, implant done. I'm a bit confused about that time because it was very intense. But yeah, I sat alone with that uh, with, with that feeling, with a lot so of these just, feelings. And you just mentioned different phases of initially having these worries and then there being a rage phase. At, in these early years, did you think, because you were 37 when you were diagnosed, yeah. but did you think... I'm going to be on tamoxifen for five years. And when that's done, I might get my chance. Or yeah. did you always know that you, that would be it for you? In terms no, of no, I didn't. I always thought I, and I never shared the, I think that you and my husband are the only people I've discussed this with. I didn't discuss it with my mom. I didn't want to upset her. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> Anymore. Of course. Um, of course. I wanted to, I had a romantic idea that what would happen, and at the time I was diagnosed, Kylie Minogue was sort of five years down the line from having been diagnosed, and I knew she'd come off medication somehow. So I had this romantic idea, and we hold on to things like that, uh, as it happened. So I had a romantic idea that I would come off tamoxifen, feel quite free from breast cancer, you know, we have this idea of only I can get to five years and then I would be pregnant and everybody would think it was just marvellous, including me and I, you know, and then it would just be this. I didn't give it any detailed thought, but I had this quite romantic idea. And at the time, my friend, my best friend, one of my four best friends, uh, Katie, who's <laughs> a wonderful person, but she'd said to me, look, Helen, I think she, she, she'd had a conversation with me and said, look, in the future, if you decide you want to have children and you can't for some reason. She didn't know I had this kind of five-year romantic idea. Maybe she did, actually, I don't know. She said, I, I'm prepared. I've had two children. Uh, we've been best friends for many, many years. We've been through a lot together. I'll donate an egg to you. I mean, if you knew my friend, um, you know, she, she, she then explained to me why her eggs would be a good bet. And if you knew her, that would <laughs> That. Hello, Katie. Katie, if you are listening, <laughs> yeah. I want a friend like Katie. I mean, it was a very generous thing to do, but she also thought she was doing me a favour. <laughs> um, oh. Genetically oh. blessed. She's genetically blessed. Um, Love it. I know. Anyway, and I had this idea, but as it happened, at the five-year point, my consultant said that the research now showed that it was sensible it was advisable, whatever, for, for women to stay on tamoxifen uh, for another five years. So a 10-year protocol for us women who were that estrogen positive. And, and as had been my way, I didn't question it. There was no way, Danny, I wasn't going to stay on it. There was just no way. If, it, if it's advised, if that's what's shown the best results, I'm staying on it. And I closed that down. I closed down that thought. However, I was still in the what I would call the rage phase of infertility then, the anger, the anger phase, the bitterness phase. I'm angry and I'm bitter. I don't like the word bitter because I yeah. was angry. Yeah. Everything yeah. bugged me. 
I'd, I'd speak to somebody who's pregnant, hate them. Somebody would say something about, oh, it's really difficult because the kids have been naughty at school. And I think, oh, well, don't know why you're complaining. Everything's great for you, which is stupid, of course, because nothing's great for anybody all of the time. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but that's in my world. And I've heard other women talk about this who have been through infertility for different reasons, that rage phase. Nothing anybody says at that point is right, can be right. Everything's wrong. You're just angry. You're so angry. It's a form of grief, isn't it? Mm. Angry and upset. Angry, self-hating, upset, oscillating between those feelings. And the world, the world is just, not only are you dealing with your cancer fears, you're dealing with the side effects of the medication you're on because tamoxifen has those side effects which mimic sort of menopause side effects. And you're also dealing with coming to terms with being different and infertility and everything in the world becomes so hard. You walk outside, somebody's pregnant and it affects you. Somebody, you're watching something on television, it's a baby advert, it affects you. It's exhausting. Yeah, because you can't, stop it because you can't stop the external influences from coming in and you're so it's so raw and it's so it's a you're processing I mean gosh everybody probably processes differently but I won't think for a second that people process it easily or quickly there is there is one thing I can't help but think at this point in the conversation is if you had had a conversation about fertility early on even if you had chosen to do exactly the same, whether that would have maybe opened doors to a um, maybe counselling or to a talking therapy, because that often comes with fertility support. And in those years of rage, that could have been helpful, I'm thinking. And I wonder where there is a little bit of lack of support for so many women, even if they never want to go through fertility treatment, it doesn't mean they need support with their decision yeah good point I did have some counseling um during the year of treatment but that was focused on the trauma of having been diagnosed with breast cancer or for me it was and a sort of almost post-traumatic I wasn't diagnosed with PTSD and apologies to anybody who has been but I'm just loosely describing it as a sort of post-traumatic reaction it yeah. wasn't talking about fertility. I think you're absolutely right. I think it would have been really beneficial for me to have a space to talk about that stuff. Of course. Yeah. In the years of rage, despair, pain, mm. you also had some bleeding between your periods. Oh, it's awful. So I got to, I was actually staying with my friend, the Kate that I referred to before. We'd gone down to Wimbledon and we'd stayed, we, we, we'd, we would always stay with them. They lived in Battersea and I'd had out of nowhere some bleeding between, my periods had always been heavy but regular, but it's between that and it was a different sort of blood. <sighs> well, uh, I, I remember, oh. The cold feeling, I just went straight to, this is the breast cancer having come back. Anyway, that, that bleeding continued and I, I embarked on gynecological uh, investigations. I have to say that where the breast cancer support had been phenomenal, basically. Oh, you know, elements missing, of course. No talking about menopause, but, to, but on the whole, it's been fantastic. The gynecological side of my investigations was just not. I think I was really unlucky. One thing that really stood out to me then was that there was no link between the breast department of the hospital and the gynecological part, no link at all. So at no point during my tamoxifen treatment was I being looked at gynecologically to see if there were any effects. Now, as it happened, I was getting recurring polyps on my uterus now, what was causing those polyps is unknown, but it could have been the long term, by then five years, tamoxifen treatment. Mm. So I don't understand 
I don't understand why I wasn't being monitored. I just don't understand that. And and it was so frightening to suddenly be thrown back into the world of investigations with no discussions. I I, I don't know. Uh, So I had these recurring polyps. I had a few um, polypectomies, I think they're called removals. They came back. The bleeding started again. I think I must have known by that stage it wasn't cancer. Yeah. I think I, but I remember thinking it was ovarian. It was terribly mixed. I went on to antidepressants at that point um, because I couldn't cope with the anxiety. I was starting a new job. I remember it at the time. Oh, anyway, eventually I gave up on the the NHS helping me. Actually, I'd had a, it just wasn't getting anywhere. As a year down the line, living with this severe worry and anxiety, and I went to see a private doctor um, who'd been recommended and. He immediately did an ultrasound, which was terribly stressful, not an ultrasound, an MRI scan, which is terribly stressful for those of us who know about scan anxiety. Yes. (laughs) But it did get to the bottom of it. And I had polyps and I had, so I had these polyps, which may or may not have been caused by tamoxifen, were not at a precancerous stage. But if left long enough, who knows? I remember him calling it pre-pre cancerous but nothing to worry about immediately but I also had severe <laughs> endometriosis uh, and the endometriosis that lining of the thickening of the lining of the wounds had probably been there since being a teenager and it had attached itself to my bowel or my intestine no my bowel and uh, which explained various other symptoms I've been having pain in my stomach and, and together we decided that the best option for me was a full hysterectomy because I had such severe anxiety by that stage about these reproductive organs of mine going wrong. And because things were painful and I was getting the usual, we just decided that the best option for me was a full hysterectomy. And that was uterus, fallopian tubes, ovaries, cervix. We decided to do cervix as well, because why have it there anymore? I remember somebody saying, what is there? Is it just a hole? I said, no, they stitch over it. <laughs> I do have a, a, a hole up to my throat. <laughs> well, I know what there is. We still have our womb, our womb space. Our womb space. <laughs> right. And so every person that defines as a woman, I feel if we oh, put our hands yeah. on our lower belly, oh, yeah. this is in yoga, our yoni mudra. And whatever is there now, whatever there isn't, whatever there was, whatever there will be. <sighs> It's still our womb space and we can hold oh. it dearly, right? Yeah, oh, I love that. A lovely womb space to cherish and it got oh. you where you are and it comes with so much pain. That's nice. I've not thought of it like that at all, actually. Anyway, I think yeah. he took my appendix so out as well. But it's not a hole, Helen. We're not going to leave it hole. as a hole. No, it's, it's not a hole. <laughs> no, it's not a hole. <laughs> I'm not just a void. I'm not just a, an empty vessel. I can imagine that preparing for a big operation like that, which is different to just having maybe ovaries removed, which is what I've done, which is quite a small keyhole operation. Your operation was big. And we also know the after effect is big. Did you have menopause, a menopause consultation with anyone at this point? No. No. So in all your time, menopause was really left, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely I didn't have any menopause consultation when I went through that sort of medical menopause with the uh, monthly injections of Zolodex or whatever it's called um and I may have been given a leaflet I don't know and I didn't certainly didn't have any when I had my hysterectomy it was a bit annoying because I was paying for it but yeah it was it was it was um but obviously I knew then that I would go, I think I did know I would go, yeah, of course I knew I'd go into menopause. Yeah, I did. I did go, I did know I'd go into menopause. Yes, that had been discussed with me, but nothing about coping with it or or what could be done. I knew, I think I went to see my breast care consultant at that time. I did. And we didn't discuss menopause in any detail, but I knew that I personally, and it is different for everybody. It is. It genuinely is different for everybody, but I personally couldn't take HRT. And even if I could, I wouldn't have done. I was but so scared apart of it. From, obviously, apart from HRT, there are many other mm. conversations to have because menopause is not HRT. But we're not going to focus on that no. too much. Today. I know. 
When you woke up from surgery after having had your hysterectomy, Helen, what happened on that day? Two things happened. <laughs> One was I woke up and I knew immediately I'd made the right decision, just like when I had my elective mastectomy. And I remember thinking, good, you know your own mind. So I woke up and I was absolutely certain, no doubts whatsoever. Thank God it's gone. Brilliant. Oh, relief. The second thing was I made a decision. And I made a decision that day that I had to immediately, and I made it change my approach to being infertile. It was over. Okay, sure. Adoption was still an option and all of that. That's a different conversation. I decided to not go down that route. But having a baby was not an option. So I had to change. And the reason I had to change was because I realized this terrible power that I had over everybody close to me's life, not just my own. And the reason it was so came into such sharp focus was because my husband's sister cruelly and bizarrely, horribly for me, had a, her first baby on the day I had my hysterectomy. And it was the first, I mean, I mean, oh it's just so, gosh. I mean, I laugh about it now and I do <laughs> genuinely laugh about it now, but it was the first grandchild of, of their family as well. It was just, and there I was rubbing it away in the hospital. Anyway, I, I remember thinking I had this terrible power over Bruce. And I'll say this because I don't think it's a secret. He would have done anything for me at that time to make me feel better. He would have done because he has always done. And if I'd have asked him to at that point, he would have never seen his family again. Ooh. I know he wouldn't have done. I didn't ask him that, obviously. But, but there was a deep pain inside me. And it could have led me to do that. Because sometimes it's easier to act out on pain than to find a positive way through. I could have asked him that. And he would have done it. And that weighed heavily. And then I realised that I had the power to make everybody for the rest of time treading on eggshells I use that word so much but tread a phrase that eggshells around me oh don't say that in front of Helen don't bring the baby to that event let should we invite Helen and Bruce that could be upsetting for Helen so I could make their life a misery but also just thinking of the misery that was going to cause me I'd been through so much and was I going to spend the rest of my life feeling bad and sad and angry what a waste of life now I didn't come to that decision overnight I came to it <laughs> after five years of processing it so it wasn't an overnight decision but it felt it and I made that decision there and then and on the whole with one or two exceptions one of which happened yesterday actually I mean I'm not you know I'm not completely together one or two exceptions one of which my sister knows about which happened this Christmas I'm quite open with her we always were. We always talked off camera, as it were, to each other. Um, but I decided not only was I not going to feel anger anymore or bitterness or resentment or, or that, I was going to support my friends and family who were having children because that's hard too nonsense to think it's not they're not living in this perfect world and anybody who thinks that they are it's just not true feels like that when you can't have children it's not it's not the reality and I was going to no longer cross the road to get away from children who I'd always loved and babies don't show me in the pram it's going to make me too upset those days were over I was going to embrace children into my life in fact I, I very much wish that I'd done some, some sort of nursery kind of work or, or something. I, again, that's not what it's I meant harder. But I was going to embrace them. I was going to, to love them, love my friend's children. Uh, and I, I have done that. And it's freed me. It's freed me 
uh, unbelievably. And on the whole, 95% of the time I've lived that, 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 that way. I've lived that way. And it's freed me. It's freed my parents because they know I'm happy. They know I have a good life. They know I have made a good life, an equally good life to your life, to my you know, anybody else's life. It's freed them. It's freed Bruce because he doesn't have to worry about his wife all the time having that pain. It's freed my friends. They don't tread on eggshells around me, not at all. So when we're in our WhatsApp, quite the opposite. When we're in our, they're sensitive. I mean, and they always were, of course they were. You know, it'd be wrong to think they weren't. My very closest friends, Rachel and Martha and Kay and Ella, have always been very sensitive to me. But they don't have to worry about what they say. On our WhatsApp groups, they don't have to have a separate group where they discuss, oh, the child was naughty at school or I'm worried about how she's feeling. We just all discuss it. I'm able to put forward my views and they accept them, even though I am not a parent. I obviously am a person. And I can see things from the outside, which they don't have the luxury of doing. I can still put myself, I can still put myself in the position of being a parent. Just because I am not a parent doesn't mean I don't can't imagine the, the awfulness it must feel when your child's being bullied or is not working hard for their GCSEs. Of course, I can put myself and I can imagine it. I just don't have to experience it, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it's freed me Danny it's freed me and I think if I can say anything it's and I still have my moments and I had one yesterday when I discovered somebody I just had a baby and the pictures came at me out of the blue I hadn't expected them they popped up on Instagram it's not somebody I follow and it oh it really I felt angry and I had to just take a moment to remind myself who I was now and all of that. But on the whole, it's freed me and I have, it has enabled me to live a life, a full life and a healthy life emotionally with Bruce. And to also have some super relationships with my friends and their lovely not all of them, but lovely. <laughs> no, they are. They're lovely, you know, little little children, and that that that's a uh, that's a real joy to me. They they bring me those children. They're not mine, but those ones that I interact with, they they genuinely bring me joy. And sometimes, you know, we 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 live on a a road where there are lots of children. And there was a time eight years ago where I would have closed the curtains and not looked at them playing outside. And now I will genuinely want to open the curtains and have a cup of tea and just watch their joyful play. Because I've realised that they're not, they're little individuals too. Yeah, they belong to somebody and they're the parent and that's their, its own relationship. They're little individuals too and you can get joy from seeing and being with those little individuals. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. So that's, and so I feel I'm in a, oh. it's taken 12 years. Yeah. And how wonderful to be able to arrive in a situation where you feel you've been freed from some of those emotions that have held you captive that's right, for yeah. so long. And how you got there is probably a conversation for another whole oh. other podcast oh. episode. But maybe it starts with deciding because you said you've made the conscious mm -hmm. decision and maybe it's planting that seed. It's deciding that life can be and will be different, that we then all find different ways of getting there. And I hope that by our conversation yeah. today, others will just hear it's possible to get there and they will find their own different ways mm -hmm. and pathways and mechanisms to get to that space. But knowing that it's possible, it's just so hopeful. Yeah, you're right, though, about that decision. There was just that decision, except I couldn't, I don't think I personally would have been able to make that decision sooner than I did. So in the five-year coming to terms with period, I don't think I would have been able to make that decision personally. So interesting to hear when other people who've gone through infertility, for whatever reason, were able to make 
that decision. I've never really spoken to anybody. I've, I've obviously, one of the things that's made me realize this conversation and our discussions beforehand is I haven't ever reached out to talk about this stuff. I've done it all within myself. I, I mean, I, I can hear my husband and my friends and my mum shouting, are you joking? You've never shut up about it. But, what I, <laughs> but, I, but I have tried to process a lot of it internally, and I think I should have. I know we shouldn't use the word should, but I think I would have benefited from finding the right talking therapy for me and that's why one of I can't remember who it was but one of your guests to talk about this compassion focused therapy and something about that maybe it was just the word really appealed to me and I'm actually going to look into it and I really think there is no such a thing as a better thing in our cancer recovery than thinking timing is key and there is a right time for everything and maybe your right time is now And it it was always meant to be the way it is because maybe you're the most receptive to it now. So you'll get the most out of it. Um, In your last sentence to my email to you, um, Mm. I want to read part of it. You said, and it was really um, our conscious decision to talk about you and your journey today, because Mm. you said, of course, there's my wonderful husband, Bruce. He has his (laughs) own story within your cancer and fertility journey and as a couple together your grandchildless parents there is adoption we could Mm. talk about there is surrogacy we could talk about and your own thoughts of them and also that Bruce should donate his sperm to a lesbian couple (laughs) which he doesn't want to do he doesn't want to do but I wanted him to have to know that I was supportive if he felt the need to continue his genetic line that I would support that you're amazing. It's Nothing not just is... a sneaky way of getting a baby into my life by a lesbian couple. <laughs> it's not just a sneaky way of doing that. Although sometimes I wonder whether it is. <laughs> Me again. <laughs> hi, can I just hold the baby? But I wanted to bring these things up because if anyone is listening, thinking, but I want to know about adoption. I want to know about surrogacy. How do I talk to my partner? What? How do I communicate with my parents? What about donating sperm? There are so many more nuggets and really yeah. important points of conversations which we don't want to go into today but they will come at a later stage maybe yeah and you're amazing thank you and thank you so much for choosing to to talk to me and us about your journey you're just well it's very kind I'm certain I'm I'm certainly not and I think if you'd have seen me during the rage stage you wouldn't say that but it's been a long journey I think what you're doing is amazing because this whole menopause movement which is which is you know how this came out can funnily enough it's trying to be very inclusive but it can feel very uh, I don't think exclusive but excluding definitely to some of us who can't you know there's a lot about who can't go down the normal routes of whatever it is and I think that what you're doing is I just couldn't believe it when I happened upon your Pot, your you know your 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 Instagram account and your podcast and oh my gosh listening to the podcast episodes from the people who have, have been through it and listening to you talk to them about your just hearing people say things that I'd felt somebody it was somebody gets it there's somebody out there that knows exactly how I was feeling I've never been able to explain this to anybody but that person gets it so to me it's just been a wonderful discovery so I'm I'm so grateful to you for for creating this space for us and I'm so grateful to you for talking about your journey today. Of course. And, um, my I feel very moved and very honored. Oh. Thank you. Oh, well, it's, it, it's my pleasure. I'll just finish off by telling you that I may not have children, but I do have a gorgeous little dog who's currently l- licking my feet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what more do you need? Well, absolutely, Helen. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. Oh. My pleasure. How are you? Um, I often get to the end of interviews like this fantastic conversation with Helen today. And I do wonder how all of you at home listening to this are feeling. We are having so many difficult conversations. Menopause and cancer is a very specific and unique topic. And it comes with so much grief and burden, but also with so much hope and beauty. But I do often wonder how you're feeling at home. And 
and what resources you could draw on if you needed more help because of maybe something you've listened to or because maybe you're a bit like Helen, you now think, gosh, I have stuff to work through. Maybe I need some talking therapy. I love that Helen, by listening to my podcast episodes, is now thinking that a form of therapy or counselling could be a good way forward for her to process things even further. And perhaps this is all I can suggest because I've got no idea where you are in the world and what you are going through. And and all I know, if you are listening to this, then I am assuming that things have been difficult and life has been quite hard for you at certain times. And perhaps it's never too late to reach out to anyone, to reach out to a charity, to reach out to your GP and ask for more support. Apart from that, I can only send you a big hug into wherever you are in the world. And I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you so much for everyone who has reviewed and rated the podcast and shared it with your uh, friends and family and other people that need it. If you've not yet reviewed it, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review. It just means that all of these systems and platforms out there are going to show the podcast to those who are going to look for it. Thank you very much. You can always email me. You can email Danny at healthyholme.com. I'll always reply to you. And um, I just want you to know there's always someone there who can, who can help, I guess. And so we're not alone with whatever we're going through. <music>